This is Jason Hansen, pastor of Anchor Church. Thank you for jumping onto our sermon podcast. My prayer is that as you listen to this sermon, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus and that you live for him in all of life. Enjoy the sermon now. Uh, Church, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 15, where we'll be at this morning. We only have two sermons left in this series in Mark, this Who Then Is This series, and we're going to have a major question answered in this morning's sermon. That question, Who Then Is This, kind of reaches its climax this morning um, in this this morning's sermon. Um, Do you remember the first time that you saw your dad cry? Remember the first time you saw your dad cry? cry. Maybe your dad's a crier, and so you're like, yeah, I see him cry all the time. Um, If you're like me, uh, and and I think many of you can relate, my dad is from a generation um, where men uh, were were not supposed to cry. Uh, My dad was a second-generation Marine, a very hardworking man, and he is one that you will not see cry often. And growing up, I did not see cry much at all. In fact, I only saw him cry once. The one time I saw my dad cry was, I was about 10 years old, and he coached myself and my siblings, he coached all of us in Pop Warner football. Uh, Football is his passion, coaching is his passion. And so when I was about 10, he coached my team to a league championship. And that is where I saw my dad cry, when we won the league championship. Now, you can learn a lot about a person when you see them in that vulnerable moment when tears are flowing down. You see, my dad came from some, some pretty tough circumstances, had a, a pretty hard life, has had. He's not dead. He's still around. Um, but my dad didn't cry. I didn't see him cry when, my, when his mom died. I didn't see him cry when his dad died. I didn't see my dad cry through different financial struggles that we had that were pretty significant. I didn't even see my dad cry when he got divorced. But I saw my dad cry when we won the league championship in Pop Warner. You learn something about someone in those vulnerable moments. To, not, not to over-psychologize my dad, but I think what I learned in that moment was that this hardworking, tough man just wanted someone to know that he could be a champion. He just wanted some validation. And even that Pop Warner championship was just what he needed to get the tears flowing. When you see someone... At their most vulnerable, you learn core truths at the heart of who they are. In church this morning, we're going to see Jesus at his most vulnerable place. He's on the cross. He's been abandoned by his friend. He's been rejected by his people. He's been falsely convicted by the state. He's beaten beyond recognition. He is dying painfully and horribly, he is at his most vulnerable moment. And an un- unexpected person learns a core truth about Jesus. And it's a core truth that you and I need. It's a core truth that shapes all of humanity. It's a core truth that has a high calling on our lives. So are you ready? Are you ready to see Jesus at his most vulnerable position? Are you ready To see this truth, this core truth revealed that is so important, that is so life-altering, that is so identity-forming. Are you ready for it this morning? Prepare yourself. Mark chapter 15, we're going to read the text. Uh, our, Our section this morning, our passage is verses 33 through 47, but we're going to start in verse 22 just to get the lay of the story again. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. 
says they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. This is our passage this morning. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling out for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. That is, he died. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he, brought, after he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. It's the word of the Lord to us this morning. What we're going to see this morning from this text, my sermon in a sentence, is that the Son of God was cast out to bring you in. Simple sentence but a profound reality. The Son of God was cast out to bring you in. And so we're going to walk through this text kind of looking at those pieces. The Son being cast out and sons and daughters being brought in. We start here with verse 33. It says it was noon. Jesus has now been hanging on the cross for a few hours. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And uh, for us reading this with Western eyes, we, we might not capture the significance of this moment, that darkness came over the land. Oftentimes, even as I read this account, I just skip past that. What does it mean that darkness came over the whole land? To the uh, people witnessing Jesus on the cross, especially the Jewish people, to those reading Mark's gospel, they would have understand understood that darkness in the Bible is symbolic for God's judgment. Darkness is a symbol of God's judgment. 
And so as the land goes dark for three hours until three in the afternoon, the, the, what's being communicated is that judgment is happening. We've spent some time uh, in this last month or so walking through the, the Passover meal and things like that. We've referenced the Exodus story a number of times. If you know your Bible well and you remember back to the Exodus story, perhaps you know the second to the last plague was darkness. This is God's judgment over the land of Egypt. Right before the firstborn are killed, the last attempt to shake Egypt into repentance is darkness over the whole land. It's a plague. It's judgment. If you were to read through uh, the prophets, you would find this same theme. Where darkness shows up, God's judgment is being spoken of. Jesus himself in the farewell discourse, when he's talking about when he will return again in judgment, he talks about the sun being blotted out. Darkness. Darkness is a symbol for God's judgment. What's happening in this moment? Jesus is experiencing God's judgment. Now that is a profound thought. That's a profound statement that Jesus would be experiencing judgment. We know that Jesus is perfect. Jesus is sinless. Jesus never strayed from God in word or thought or deed, and yet, darkness. It's so bad, in fact, that Jesus cries out this amazing, uh, deep prayer. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, if you're with us last week, Jason mentioned Psalm 22. There's references to Psalm 22 all over this crucifixion account. This is a direct line from Psalm 22, verse 1. This is how Psalm 22 starts, is with this line. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And what we are entering into when we read that sentence is a very complex and nuanced theological discussion. Here is God the Son, crying out in the power of God the Spirit, to God the Father, why have you abandoned me? Well, that's complex. Something's happening here. If you haven't been around the church, maybe you're not familiar with this term, but we recognize that God is Trinity. God exists as one God in three persons. Not three gods, but one God existing in three, perfect, in three persons. Perfect harmony, perfect connection. And here within the Godhead, you have something happening where God the Son is crying out because he feels forsaken. And somehow the Trinity remains intact and yet Jesus experiences judgment by God the Father for sins that he did not commit. What is happening here? Let your minds expand for a moment to the complexity of what is happening. God feels abandoned by God. God feels abandoned by God. And it's a moment of deep anguish where we find the relationship is intact. Jesus is calling out, my God, my God. That's a, a, a relational connection. He's still saying, Father, you are my God. We're still relationally connected. And yet, at that moment, he feels abandoned. The abandonment, the feeling of abandonment is real. You can imagine what kind of excruciating pain Jesus is experiencing, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, 
spiritually. I like what R.T. France says. Because this is complex. We can be tempted to go, let me, let me put this into a formula and try and understand it. What R.T. France, who's a commentator, says is, Mark wants us to feel Jesus' agony, not to explain it. Mark wants us to feel Jesus' agony. And maybe as you read this account, and, and what you would normally do is read through it and, and, and skip that feeling of agony. I'm going to ask you not to do that this morning. Let's feel the agony of Jesus as he cries out, darkness over the land, judgment being poured out on him. You know, we like to say, God, I've seen the, the bumper sticker, only God can judge me. That's not something we should be proud of. That's a scary thought. God can judge you, and God does judge. God is holy and perfect, and in order to be good, he must judge evil. And here we have the Son, the perfect one, experiencing that judgment, and he is crying out in agony. You see, this is deeper than yeah, even a friend or a relative turning their back on you in the agony you might feel. Again, God is Trinity. This is as if Jesus is being ripped apart inside. It's like a piece of you is being ripped apart from you. But the Trinity remains intact, and yet the Son feels abandoned by the Father. And we talk about Jesus' judgment, and we say, well, Jesus doesn't judge me. We use that as an excuse sometimes to sin or to get away with gray areas. You know, we do that, church. We are downplaying this moment of deep agony where the Son is having judgment poured out on him so that we might have forgiveness. If you are in Christ, you're right. He doesn't judge you because he bore the judgment for you. But that's not something we want to downplay. That's something we want to stand in awe of. That's something we want to be grateful for. Something we want to capture our hearts. What, what is going on here? What's happening is Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do just one chapter earlier. When he was sitting at dinner with his disciples and he was uh, establishing the communion meal, the Lord's Supper, and he passed around a cup in Mark chapter 14, verse 24, and he said, this, this cup, this wine, is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And here is Jesus being poured out for many. His blood is being poured out. The judgment that many deserve for our sins, for all of the ways that we have denied God and rejected him, is being poured out on Jesus in that moment. He is being poured out as the judgment is being poured onto him. What's happening in that moment is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He tells us what's going on here as Jesus cries out. He says, in Christ, on the cross, as Jesus is experiencing judgment for sinners, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. How could God not count our trespasses against us? Because he poured out the judgment for them on Jesus in this moment of darkness. Paul goes on to say, he made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, the perfect one, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a moment. Jesus, in his most vulnerable, yes, rejected by friends, yes, rejected by his people, yes, convicted by the state, but even this feeling, my God, Father, part of me, why have you abandoned me? 
But this wasn't an arbitrary casting out of the son. Jesus wasn't uh, cast out against his will. Jesus wasn't cast out unaware. If you've been with us through the book of Mark, Jesus has predicted this moment a number of times. This is why he came. Jesus was born to die. Jesus came to bear the judgment for your sins and for mine so that in him we might have life. Jesus is not an unwilling victim. Jesus is there hanging, experiencing this anguish intentionally for you and for me. There's a purpose behind it. The the son was cast out so that sons and daughters could be brought in. And we find that as we go on in the text. See in verse 37 that Jesus let out a loud cry. We'll get back to that loud cry. But he breathes his last. He dies. And when that happens, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you've been around the church, you've, you've likely heard this talked about before, but in the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And it was a place where God's presence dwelt. The glory of God was in the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go in there. That was the high priest. And they could only go in once a year. They would go in once a year to make atonement for the people's sins. So again, judgment, atonement. But only the high priest could go. He would go as a mediator between God and his people to, to get atonement for their sins, to, to cast off judgment through their offerings and receive forgiveness and renewal. One person, once a year. And there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And as Jesus dies, that curtain is torn from top to bottom. That's significant. It's not torn from bottom to top. It's not as if man has made their way to God by ripping through the curtain, cutting from the bottom up. No, God himself ripped the curtain. God himself tore open the curtain from top to bottom so that there's no longer a barrier between the glory of God, the presence of God, and the people of God. Through the death of Jesus, that's what's happening here. The curtain is torn from top to bottom. The holy of holies is opened up so that it's no longer just one mediator between God and man, but men and women have freedom to come to the glory of God through the death of Jesus. That curtain that was torn is really tall. and is this big tapestry that had a picture was woven into it of of the heavens, the cosmos, uh, the moon and the stars and the sun. And that's important imagery as we think about it being ripped. Because this ripping of the curtain has echoes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1 of Mark. It's the only other time in the gospel that this verb that's translated torn is used. And there's parallels between what's happening here and the curtain being torn and what's happening when Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his ministry. So I want to look at that together as we try and understand what's happening here. This is Jesus' baptism. I think I've got it on the screen for you to follow along. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. Again, the same verb. The only other time it's going to be used is when the curtain is torn. Being torn open... And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well 
pleased. And there's a number of important parallels between this baptism at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the curtain being torn at the end of his life. In both, you have this tearing happening. At the, the baptism, the heavens are torn open. The heavens, where the glory of God dwells, are torn open. And the voice of God and the Spirit of God descends onto a man. And at Jesus' death, this curtain pictured on it are the heavens, behind which is the glory of God. It is torn open. And just like the Spirit descending on Jesus, the the presence, the glory of God descends from behind the torn heavens onto a man, the God-man we know now, as the curtain in the temple is torn open, the glory of God comes forth. And now through faith in Jesus, the spirit of God descends on you and I, fills us through faith in Jesus. And then you have this other parallel, this son parallel at the baptism. You have the voice of God. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And in Mark 15, In an ironic parallel, you have the voice of the guy who murdered Jesus. The centurion overseeing the murder of Jesus says, truly, this man was the son of God. There's this parallel, this sun language. And through this death and through this torn curtain and and through the glory of God descending on us in the spirit, we too hear the voice, this is my daughter, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Do you see, when the son was cast out, he was doing so so that sons and daughters might be brought in, so that the separation between God and man might be ripped apart and the glory of God might descend on us. And the proclamation, you are a beloved son and daughter of the living God through faith in Jesus might descend on you. Like the way that the writer of Hebrews talks about this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, again, sons and daughters, also brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter through the sanctuary, enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so now we enter the holiest places through the body and blood of Jesus. And we do so boldly. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance. The declaration of you are a son or daughter. Pure heart, full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience because Jesus bore the judgment in the darkness and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. How faithful is he? He put his body on the cross. He bore your judgment so that you would have the confidence to live in the presence and glory of God for now and for eternity. Sons and daughters, redeemed, glorified. Let's go back to this phrase that the centurion utters. Truly this man was the son of God. This really is the climax of this who then is this theme. We've been looking at who then is this throughout the book. Who is Jesus? We want to understand him at a deeper level. And here is the irony. The first human 
in the book to proclaim who Jesus is, is the guy overseeing his murder. So God has proclaimed, this is my son. We see that at the baptism. We also see it at the transfiguration. God proclaims that, this is my son. We see the demons proclaim that Jesus is the son of God because they know who he is. Jesus says it of himself, but this is the first human in all of Mark and the whole narrative to see Jesus for who he really is at his moment of greatest vulnerability. Truly, this man was the son of God. And there's a word in there. Was. Was. You see, he realizes it when it's too late. Jesus has already died. It's already over. This man was the son of God. It took his death for someone to finally see it. And the person who finally saw it was the least likely. The disciples didn't catch it. The Pharisees and the scribes who were masters of the Old Testament, they didn't catch it. In fact, they mocked him for proclaiming it. We see that as he's on the cross. They, they mock him. If you're the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. They're mocking him. They don't see it. And yet the centurion here is the one who proclaims, surely, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, he says that because he sees the way Jesus dies. It says there that Jesus let out a loud cry in verse 37. Mark doesn't tell us what was in that cry. Uh, it could be that he cried out what John records in chapter 19 of his gospel, which is, it is finished. Or it could be what Luke records in his gospel, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Perhaps some combination of the two. We don't know, but I think that when Jesus let out a loud cry, it was something to that effect. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. And as this man saw the way Jesus lived and died and heard the confidence that he had in his dying breath, he saw something. Truly, this man was the son of God. And he died so that sons and daughters might be brought in. We see this. We see some unexpected, other unexpected sons and daughters here. You have the women who are watching from a distance. And we actually find out, you know, we haven't heard about the women, all gospel. But Mark drops it here. Oh yeah, these women have been here since Galilee. So since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, these women have been with him. And they've not just been tagging along. He says, they followed him and took care of him. Daughters, of, of the living God, brought in through the death of Jesus. Disciples who came and they were there looking on, watching what happened. Something I want to notice. No surprise, right, that the women are in the background doing the work the whole time. And we finally hear about them. No surprise, right? But notice what Mark says of the women. These are all the things that Jesus has been calling his disciples to at just a baseline level Throughout the gospel, they followed him, they served him, they took care of him, and they watched. They watched him. Faithful disciples following him all along, daughters of God. And then you have another unexpected person. You have this Joseph. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, Mark tells us. At the beginning of this chapter, Mark chapter 15, verse 1, 
he told us that the whole Sanhedrin conspired to kill Jesus. So Joseph was a part of that conspiracy. Or maybe he was party to it and just didn't raise his voice. And now here he is after Jesus' death. He is a wealthy man. He is a powerful man. We're going to talk more about him in our application uh, section. But here he is at the end after Jesus has died, taking his body to give him an honorable death. You see, it was customary for Romans to leave crucified individuals up on the cross. And their bodies would be picked clean by wild animals. But whatever was left would be hanging there on the cross as a reminder to anyone who would cross the Roman government, this is what happens to insurrectionists. This is what happens when you cross Caesar. But Joseph wanted Jesus to have an honorable death. So he goes and he brings him down. We'll talk more about Joseph in a minute. But what we want to see is the power of what Jesus has done in tearing that curtain. Here you have daughters and sons brought in. Even one who conspired against him brought in. Women who at this time were not viewed favorably in society brought in. They're the ones who followed, who served, who watched. Sons and daughters brought in through the casting out of the son. The son of God was cast out to bring you in. So what do we do with this? How should being brought in change how we live? What what should it do in our hearts and in our lives when we recognize the glory and the depth of what Jesus has done? When we see him in this most vulnerable moment and learn this core truth that he is the son of God who was cast out for us. Where do we go from here with that? Two ways that we can live this out this morning. There's a bunch, but we'll hit two. The first is to live boldly because you've been brought in. Live boldly because you've been brought in. We see examples of boldness on display here by sons and daughters. We'll start with Joseph. Let's go back to him. Again, he's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He's got social status. He's got wealth. He's got political power. He's got privilege. He's in a very privileged position. And notice what he does. Mark even tells us it was bold. He says in verse 43 that Joseph was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And he goes boldly to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. And this would have taken boldness. Jesus has been convicted and crucified as an enemy of the state. And here is a a, a leading member of the the, the council going to the leader of the state in that area and saying, yeah, that guy that you killed for crossing the state, I know normally you would just leave his body up there, but I want to give him an honorable death. What's to stop Pilate in that moment from going, oh, Joseph, So you're with him. Guess what? I got a cross for you too. What's to stop the Sanhedrin who Joseph conspired with to kill Jesus from going, hold on, you did what? You want to give that guy an honorable death? No, we want him to be left up there. We want everyone to make a mockery of him. What happens to Joseph's standing and his wealth and his status 
I don't know, but he didn't care. He goes boldly, and he asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead because normally it would have taken days. Uh, normally, Jesus wouldn't, people who were crucified would not die that quickly. So he needs confirmation, and once he gets it, he does grant Joseph the body. And notice what Joseph does. His boldness doesn't stop at just asking for the body of Jesus. He goes out and he buys new burial linens. He's investing in this honorable burial for Jesus. He buys new linens, and then he has Jesus put into a tomb. Okay, now it can be really tempting for us to read this. We don't get what's going on here in, uh, in, in Jewish burial rites and rituals and what's happening here, okay? It's not as if Joseph owned a plot in a cemetery, in a cemetery and said, you know what, I'll give Jesus that plot and I'll buy another one. That's not what's happening here. These tombs, they were cut into the side of a rock. They were very expensive because of the process of cutting into a rock and building a tomb. And they also weren't just for one person. Because they were so expensive, these were family tombs. Generations of Joseph's family would have already been buried there or would be buried there in the future. It wasn't just one tomb. Like we get the picture of, you know, Easter and it's just one tomb with one you know, one area for a body. No, this would have been kind of a vast network of tombs that were all family members that Joseph owned. And so, here's the boldness. For Jesus to say, yeah, I'm going to take this convicted criminal, the one rejected by the Jewish leaders, the one convicted by the state, and I'm going to entomb him with my family. We are forever going to be associated with this one. This one who was rejected and crucified and convicted. Our whole family is going to be associated with him now and forever. Do you see the boldness in what Joseph is doing? Do you see the association with Jesus? In this moment, Joseph is bold. But when you've been brought in, all that other stuff just doesn't seem to matter so much, does it? We see the boldness in the centurion. I don't know if the centurion came to faith in that moment. But this statement for him to make in this moment that truly this man was the son of God is a bold statement. You see, when he pledged allegiance to Rome, what he would have had to say is that Caesar is the son of God. See, at this point, Caesars were known as sons of God. And you could not proclaim allegiance to anyone else or proclaim that anyone else is the son of God. No, Caesar is the son of God. To say anything else is a violation of your oath of office. It is to rebel against the state. It is to get the same fate that the man hanging there that you just proclaimed as the son of God would get. And so for the centurion overseeing this murder to stand there in uniform and say, not Caesar is the son of God, but this man, the dead one on the cross, he is the son of God, truly. That's a bold statement. It would be like, I hope this isn't an insensitive uh, comparison, but it would be like a Ukrainian soldier standing up right now and saying, no, Putin is king. Everyone around him would go, wait, what? No, we're, we're fighting that guy. That's what this soldier is doing. It's a bold statement. Truly, this man is the son of God. And then we have the women, the bold women. They're at a distance watching. Do you remember what happened when Peter was at a distance watching Jesus? He averted his gaze. 
He said, I don't know that guy. But here are the women. And they are watching. And they're not averting their gaze. They're not denying him. Like any of the other disciples who ran away, who rejected him, who denied him. It's the bold women there watching Jesus die. They're taking account, even watching where he was laid. They want to come back and prepare his body with fragrances. Again, being associated with the guy who was just killed. Potentially accepting the same fate on themselves. Boldness all over the place here. Sons and daughters. People who have been brought in by God through the death of the Son live boldly. See, the cost to follow Jesus is high, but it's worth it. Every step of faithfulness is a risk of being put out in some way. Every step. It's a risk of being put out socially. It's a risk of being put out financially. It's a risk of being put out in your comfort. It's a risk of being put out for space in your house or miles on your car. Every step of faith where you step out to love God and love people, you are risking being cast out in some way. So why would we do it? Because we recognize the Son of God was cast out to bring us in. People who have been brought in recognize, I can miss out on anything in this life because I've been given the greatest gift, grace and forgiveness. The judgment for my sin was poured out on Jesus. The heavens were ripped open so that the glory of God could dwell in me. No matter what anyone else says about me, God himself says, beloved daughter or son with whom I am well pleased. Cast me out of whatever you want if I've got that. This is where the, the freedom to live boldly comes from, is recognizing who you are. What's been done for you? Does your life say, this is one who's been brought in? This is one who's living in confidence, in selflessness, in generosity. We talk about being joyfully generous. You know how we can be joyfully generous? It's only if we understand that we've been brought in. We've been given the greatest gift. We don't need to hold on to anything, be it friendship, time, resources, whatever it is. We don't need to hold on to any of it because we've been given the greatest gift. The Son of God was cast out to bring us in. That's the key to generosity. What does your life say? This is one who's been brought in. The cost of following Jesus is high. It's a risk. And here's what I want to posit to you. If you are not experiencing the cost, are you really following the king? Because the disciples in that moment, they weren't experiencing the cost. They ran away. But the women are. The rest of the Sanhedrin, they're not experiencing any cost. Because they've already denied him. But Joseph is. If you're not experiencing the cost, are you really following the king, live boldly because you've been brought in. And secondly, hear the shout of victory in your cry of despair. You know, it's easy to talk about living boldly, but we all experience moments of despair. If you've lived boldly, I'm sure you can attest to this. You take steps of faith, and then you get to a place where you go, hold on, where is God? Is he even with me here? I thought he brought me here, but where is he? 
Have you ever experienced that? If so, you're not alone. Here's the perfect son who followed the will of the father to a T, walked in perfect communion with his father, and here he is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? If the son can cry out in despair like this, you can too. That's not a sinful prayer. If Jesus prayed it, it's not a sinful prayer. It's, it's not sinful to ask God, what is going on? Where are you? Have you forgotten about me? Are your promises still true? It's just an honest reflection of where you're at. God, I'm in pain. God, I feel abandoned. God, I feel forsaken. Where are you? The key, though, is that we don't stay there. Now, whether or not Jesus had all of Psalm 22 in mind as he prayed verse 1, I don't know. But Psalm 22 does start with this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But it ends with a praise of God and a recognition of his restorative grace and power. His promise-keeping nature and ability. We can't stay here in despair. We have to recognize God is up to something. I love this quote from Henry Nouwen. He says this, Where God's absence was most loudly expressed, here on the cross, by the Son of God himself, the most loudest expression of God's absence, my God, why have you forsaken me, is where God's presence was most profoundly revealed. Because that is God, the Son, on the cross, accomplishing redemption for all who would trust in him. That moment where God's absence is most loudly expressed is the moment in human history that all of history was leading up to and all history flows out from. God's plan of redemption, the gospel, the good news, right there. Abandonment is expressed, but God's presence is profoundly revealed. What do we do with this? We remember that in your despair, God is up to something. God is doing something. God is not far off. God is near. God is working perhaps his biggest, mightiest work in your life in that moment. See, when the world darkened, Jesus was defeating darkness. So we don't need to fear darkness. We don't need to fear the dark night of the soul. We don't need to fear the darkness around us. No, when the world darkened, Jesus was defeating darkness. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Even the death and grave are going to be conquered by Jesus. Spoiler alert, we'll see that next week. Even death couldn't hold him. The darkness of the grave, the stillness and coldness of death. And yet Jesus overcomes. You might feel right now like God has abandoned you, but here, that's not the final word. Hear the final word from, again, jumping forward to next week. Chapter 16, verse 6. Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Hear the shout of victory in your cry of despair. Church, the Son of God was cast out to bring you in. I want to invite the band up as we prepare to close and take communion and just leave you with a thought. You, you learn a lot about someone in their moment of vulnerability you learn a lot about what God's doing in their life and, and who, who they are as a son and daughter of God. What if your neighbor, what if those in your community group, what if those in your huddle saw you at your most vulnerable? 
What, what if you didn't hide anymore? But because of the grace of forgiveness, you could live with a bold vulnerability with those around you. And we could see God at work in our shouts of dis- despair, in our joys, in our praises. We could see God at work here in our midst. And what would the world around us see and learn about the God that we serve? Church, we see Jesus here at his moment of deepest vulnerability and we find him being cast out, bearing the judgment for our sins so that we might be brought in to receive the glory of God ourselves. What a gift. May we live in light of it. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we praise you for the son who was cast out. We thank you for the darkness on the cross because it was in that moment that you were bringing light to our hearts. It was in that moment that you were casting out the darkness so that we might live in the glory of your light. Lord, forgive us for where we've forgotten that. Forgive us for where we've taken that for granted. Forgive us for where we failed to live boldly in the grace of of the reality of being blood-bought sons and daughters of the living God and instead have hidden or cowered. Lord, help us to follow you boldly. Lord, help us to see your grace in our despair. Help us to see your love in our hardships and help us to do it all with one another in a way that proclaims the goodness of who you are to us and among us. God, we need you to do all of that work. Just as the curtain temple was torn from the top to the bottom, it is your work in our lives that we look to. God, would you do that work in us from the top to the bottom? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. I really hope that you were encouraged by the sermon today. You can learn more about us at anchorchurchgilbert.com. We'd love to have you join our mailing list. You can do that on the website. If you have any questions for us about who Jesus is, please let us know through our website. I hope that you were encouraged.